I don't know if I need to tell you to turn to Mark chapter 1. It's only one verse that we're looking at today. Um, we're uh, starting off, and I thought that this, well, made the most sense to me uh, to introduce it, so to speak, uh, kind of get us the lay of the land, uh, and we'll see what happens. Um, the The title of this series, so the theme that I want to be developing throughout the course of this series is Following Jesus. So this is largely about discipleship, but it's discipleship that arises out of who Jesus is. So uh, hopefully we'll be talking a lot about who Jesus is, and therefore what it means for us to follow Jesus. So we begin with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, Help us to receive your word like the Thessalonians did. Uh, Not as if it were the word of man, uh, but as the word of God itself. Help us to submit our minds, affections, and will to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ as he is revealed to us in the gospel. That we might turn from our idols to serve the living God through faith and in love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, through faith in His incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension, we ask this. Amen. It's obvious to me, but it might not be obvious to everyone else. Uh, The reality is that stories shape our lives. Uh, we can see this in terms of true stories or true events, maybe another way of putting that. Uh, some of us have had uh, family members who lived through the Great Depression. And my grandmother didn't trust banks. <laughs> and so when she died, my uncles raided the house looking for money that would be tucked away in various hidden places that she had placed it. Uh, some people put their faith in made-up stories. They shape their lives around things like Harry Potter. I would never do anything like that. Okay, Uh, But yet, there are people who do. I had a friend who uh, everything seemed to be related to an episode of The Simpsons. It was amazing how he could somehow bring up some episode or event that happened within The Simpsons, which is a story, uh, about life. As I was studying history with the kids this week on Friday, it became very clear to me of the impact that the stories have on shaping lives. We studied two chapters. One was about the Industrial Revolution that started in Great Britain and then spread throughout the West And then we looked to China, which at that very same point in time was rejecting everything that the West had to offer, including the Industrial Revolution. And one of the rationales that the the history book gave to why the emperor of China was so resistant to the ideas of the West was that they believed in the teachings of Confucius. And the teachings of Confucius would indicate that they are intended to live in harmony with nature. And so the the story that shaped them was the teachings of Confucius leading them to harmony. 
Whereas in the West, one of the main things that was shaping their ideas was Christianity with the creation mandate to subdue and rule, to study creation, not to live in harmony with it, so to speak, as much as to harness it, to utilize it. And so one part of the world became industrialized, and the other one, for a while anyway, remained agrarian, rural, and unindustrialized. It was the stories they believed in that shaped their response. We're looking at a story today. We're looking at a true story, but story nonetheless. One of my professors wrote a book. He gave us stories which reminds us that God has given most of what He teaches us in the Scripture through historical narrative. That God does not just give us a list of propositional doctrines that we're intended to believe, but most of what He communicates is through stories. Yes, there's Paul. In those letters, he gives propositional truth. But most of what we learn, we learn through stories. And Mark at the beginning of his book, tells us that he's telling us a story, a true story, and he's telling it to us so that it will shape our lives. John Mark, which was his kind of, not necessarily his full name, but uh, Mark being the name that he used amongst the Hebrews, and uh, sorry, John being the name he used amongst the Hebrews, and Mark being the name he used amongst the Gentiles, was Mary's son. She lived in Jerusalem, and it's her house, most likely, that they celebrated the last Passover. Uh, so he's Mary's son. He's also, as we see from other texts, Barnabas's nephew. And he would go on to serve with Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey before he bailed. But God has mercy, and he's redemptive. And Barnabas decided to encourage him as the son of encouragement and bring him along on a second journey. And then later on... He would work with Peter and then Paul again. Paul got over what was bugging him about about Mark the first time and found him to be very useful. So, this is a man who moved with all of the movers and shakers of the early Christian community. In light of that fact, it's surprising that liberal scholars from the 19th century on have basically said that Mark was written largely from this mysterious source that they named Q. I don't know why they came up with Q, but they did. Uh, And so it's not, in their view, a compilation of his own memories of things that occurred and things that he heard other disciples tell, uh, as well as hearing the Apostle Peter tell them. Uh, it's sort of this imaginary source cue. I reject that theory, okay? Just to be on the safe side. Uh, just to clarify, rather, for you. I think this is a collection of his personal remembrances because he had interaction with Jesus. He had interaction with many of his disciples and would have heard many of these stories and then spent a number of years working with Peter, most likely hearing even more of them. And that's why some people think this is, in a sense, Peter's gospel. Because Mark himself was not an apostle, but he was connected to both Paul and Peter. 
but predominantly Peter. We see that, uh, well, the liberal scholars would have us believe that then then uh, this mysterious source Q was also used by uh, Matthew and Luke in the compilation of their Gospels, but we can easily see that Matthew and John remembered different events in the, lives of, in the life of uh, Jesus, and Luke, using his sources from many, uh, remember he talks about investigating these things, and so many of the people he knew that were eyewitnesses to these events remembered other things. As we consider the four Gospels, uh, some have often talked about it being similar to the four networks. Uh, let's move beyond that, because that, 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 that's going to get us involved in partisan sorts of things. But let's go to, instead, um, something like this. Nope, that ain't the one. Is that the first one you have? Yes. There was a mistake made somewhere in the line. That, thing, that happens. Think of it more in terms of, uh, say, the BBC, Al Jazeera, Reuters, AP, or some other foreign thing. They may choose certain events going on in history, not history, but current events, and present them to you. And some of those might present the same events, but they will have a very different perspective on it based on where they are coming from. The BBC is going to be largely focused on British issues, right? They're looking at it from the perspective of people in Britain. How does it affect Britain? Al Jazeera will look at it in terms of how it affects the Middle East. Uh, an American news source will think about it in terms of how it affects or doesn't affect America. That's similar to what we find with the four Gospels. We see that Matthew was likely written to the people in Palestine, where Jesus was. And so there's a focus on the, the Jewish aspect of of Jesus' ministry. Mark, most likely written to Christians in Rome and non-Christians in Rome, will share this perspective. What would, what of these events would matter in, 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 for people in Rome? Luke, most likely writing for uh, Christians in Syria, Antioch, would uh, write for their perspective, uh, the things that would matter to them. John, writing to the Christians in Ephesus over in Asia Minor, would communicate slightly differently. Okay, They're selective. It's not as though John knew nothing about this event that's recorded in Matthew. It's just he, doesn't, he decides not to tell his audience about that, thinking that there's something that else that they need to hear. We don't need to be frightened by the differences that we find in the Gospels, but rather encouraged because they are four different audiences. And they're told by different people who will tell, will emphasize slightly different things. Mark is writing for a Roman audience, and that shapes how he tells this story that we're going to study for, I have no idea how long, because the first chapter is going to take me a couple of months, uh, but the second chapter, not so much. Okay. He's writing for Christians, or for people in Rome, and therefore he shapes this story around action. That is one of the distinctive things about the Gospel of Mark, there are not many discourses. You know, if you go to John, you have these chapter-long discussions and dialogues that take place. You don't find that in Mark. Because the Romans were a people of action. 
And so its focus is on action. What you're going to find as we go through this is the word immediately. Almost every time there's a change in, in uh, scenery, it's, you're going to find that word immediately. Okay, It's always moving, fast-paced. Uh, things are happening. It's not philosophical in any way, shape, or form because the Romans tended not to be philosophical. They tended to be very pragmatic, action-oriented. And so I think there's an application point here as we, before we get into what's actually said. We are intended to know our audience when we present the gospel. We present the same message, but the way we present it should be, should be influenced by the person we're presenting it to. And it's not simply, uh, you know, I speak English to someone who speaks English and I speak French to someone who speaks French. It goes beyond that. We recognize their cultural interests and how they are resolved in the gospel. Okay? That's a good form of contextualization. It's one of those big words pastor guys like me throw around, you know. You want to make sure it's, it's, in the context, not just of Scripture, but also the community that you communicate with. And some people do a bad job of that and flatten the Bible. But we want to make sure that we're communicating so it's understood by the people that we're, we're talking to. And so that's a large part of what Mark is doing as he shapes this telling of this story. Surely he had memorized many of Jesus' discourses but he chose not to include them here. This is not an exhaustive retelling, but a purposeful retelling of Jesus' story. Now let's get a little bit into what he says in this one verse that we're looking at today. This is the beginning of the Gospel, which is sort of fascinating to me because, uh, well, one, every story has a beginning. If we think about it in terms of heroes, every hero has an origin, a beginning story. Um, but it also fits within the culture of Rome. Because we found inscriptions that say the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's kind of a strange thing, right? To talk about a gospel when we think about it from our perspective, a gospel of Caesar Augustus. But that was a standard way of speaking for the Romans, and Mark is tapping into that and changing the story. That the good news is not about Caesar Augustus. The real good news is going to be about Jesus. He's writing in a common uh, style if in the Roman Empire, this sort of, uh, it's almost like we would call a biography. Okay? It focuses on the adult life and the accomplishments, not so much childhood. And so you'll see one of the distinctives of Mark's gospel is it just starts with John the Baptist as an adult. There's no birth narrative. There's no story about Jesus being lost at the temple when he's 12. There's none of that. It goes right to boom. Adulthood, because that's what mattered to the Romans. These Roman uh, forms would often focus on the victories to show you how fortunate you are to be living under the reign of Augustus Caesar. Now, of course, that implies that you are not cheering for 
his enemies in the great wars that preceded the fact of his coming to power after the death of Julius Caesar. Okay, But we see something similar in Isaiah 52. Familiar phrase, or a familiar passage to us. Uh, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So we see both in Isaiah 52 as well as in the culture around Mark that a gospel or is basically good news or an announcement of a great event, a great story that has taken place that is about to change your life. In the case of Augustus Caesar, it's, hey, you've got a new emperor to rule over you. And he's so much better than the old emperor. But in this case, it's about something completely different. But Mark understands that what he's writing is an announcement that is intended to change the life of his audience. It is not merely to be for information's sake so that you can get the facts about who Jesus is. It is intended to give you facts, but facts that are intended to transform how you live. He wants this story to shape you. He wants this story to be the dominant way you think about life. So, do you think of the gospel as good news? Do you think of it as not just good news for you, but as good news that invites people into newness of life? A change in their identity, a change in their status, a change in their way of living. You're intended to. And so the first thing we think about as we talk about this is that the gospel is a great story. That's the first thing I want you to remember, to remember is that the gospel is a great story. Now, that Roman inscription indicated that Augustus Caesar would change everybody's life, but here Mark indicates that the real gospel that matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus as well as being from Jesus. Okay? That little grammatical thing can move in both of those directions. Okay? I believe it is about or, or from Jesus precisely because of what we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, here's the key phrase, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so we see uh, that Peter is is saying that it was the Spirit of Christ at work in the Old Testament uh, prophets to reveal this message that Jesus was about to fulfill. And so, uh, therefore, we say that this message has its origin in the work of the Spirit of Christ or Christ himself. And so this this is the good news from Christ but it is also the good news about Christ because it's His sufferings and His glory, subsequent glories, that are being revealed in the Gospel of Mark, just as they were revealed in the prophets in the Old Testament. 
And so this good news arises from the Spirit of Christ at work in the prophets and then the apostles after them. Okay, after Jesus. But this good news is about Jesus. It is about His suffering. It is about the glories that follow. It's about the fact that Jesus overcomes. He dominates, which is one of the uh, key ideas within Roman culture. It's good to be on the top. It's bad to be on the bottom. Okay, and here we have a Jesus that is going to overcome, but there's a, a stark difference between Jesus and Caesar. Caesar overcomes armies, right? His, his overcoming is on the battlefield. Think especially of Octavius, who became Augustus Caesar. It was because he triumphed on battlefields that he became Caesar. Jesus is not going to overcome armies, but he's going to, as we see throughout the course of this gospel, he's going to overcome disease. He's going to overcome infirmity. He's going to overcome evil spirits. And ultimately, and most importantly, sin and death. This is a Jesus who will triumph over all of these things. And that's good news, because we all deal with infirmity. We all deal with disease. We all deal with evil Sin and death. Augustus was Caesar, a ruler of the Roman Empire. Jesus, on the other hand, is the Christ or the Messiah. He's the Redeemer, the Mediator, the one who is going to stand and rule between God and man. He has a far more significant role in history than Caesar ever could hope to have. But it's because of this different dynamic, this different kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to bring, that he is not necessarily a threat to Caesar's throne, but he's establishing a worldwide eternal king, kingdom rather, that is centered upon peace and salvation. Something that Rome really didn't grasp or offer people. Messiah simply means anointed. And what we find in the Old Testament is that there are three people who are anointed, or three offices that are anointed. As Messiah, Jesus is the prophet. That's why we read from Deuteronomy 18 this morning. Uh, John interacts a lot with that uh, as well. Jesus is the prophet that is like unto Moses, so to speak. He is revealing God's will. He's revealing God's way of salvation. And we are intended to listen to him. And so we have Deuteronomy 6 and how John 6 interacts with Deuteronomy, sorry, Deuteronomy 18. John 6 interacts with Deuteronomy 18. And we see the very first verses of Hebrews chapter 1 indicate that God has spoken to us finally in his Son. In other words, He's the one who speaks that we are intended to listen to. He is not just a prophet, he is the prophet. As Messiah, Jesus is also our great high priest. The one who takes away our sin and continues to live that he might intercede for us. And we see this beginning in places like Psalm 110, which is why we 
we read it from our uh, call to worship this morning, okay? that somehow, okay, Yahweh said to, this is, Yahweh said to David's Lord or Master. Okay, he's a king, but then there's this whole phrase, this whole section about, I'm going to make you a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. And we saw that how the author of Hebrews develops that in chapters 5 and 7, showing why Jesus is the high priest, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. That he is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He is the one who really removes our guilt. He is the one who continues to live so that he intercedes for us and enables us, or saves us to the uttermost, as it says in Hebrews 7.25. Additionally, as Messiah, Jesus is the Davidic king who subdues us and then protects us as God's people. We see this theme beginning in Second Samuel chapter seven, you don't have that one. Oh my! Okay. Then going back again to Psalm two, Psalm one hundred and ten. Then we see it being picked up in the New Testament in places like Romans one, where where Paul focuses on the fact that according to the flesh he's descended from David. He's the fitted king. And we see it in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay, where he's, he's ruling until his enemies are placed under his feet, and then he will hand the kingdom over to his father. Verses uh, 24 and 25 there in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we should understand this, that, that Jesus is far superior to Caesar. Jesus is far superior to our president. Doesn't matter which one you want to pick. He's superior. His rule is more thoroughgoing and far more valuable. And he reigns until he has accomplished his purpose. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you should find a little thing at the end of the verse that says, basically, hello, there's a footnote down there. Go look at the footnote. And what you will see is that it says, at least in my ESV, and it says it in probably all of them, something along these lines. Uh, Oh boy, tiny print. Some manuscripts omit the Son of God. Oh, wait a minute. Do we have a problem here? I don't think we have a problem. Okay. This is not found in every manuscript, particularly the oldest manuscripts, that phrase, the Son of God, which is actually just two words. Okay, uh, Bruce Metzger, who's one of those uh, New Testament uh, brainiacs in his commentary on all of those sorts of things, it looks just like my Greek New Testament, same kind of binding and everything, it's tricksy, um, gives it a C in terms of a rating. He, he rates everything by A, B, C, D. And so it's really one of those ones where we're not sure whether those two words were there initially or not. Some copyists may have left it out. If you're like me, 
A lot of times when I'm doing my notes, I'm, I'm copying a phrase from a book onto my computer, and I'm not the greatest typist in the universe, and so I look up, and when you look up, sometimes when you look back down, you've missed your place and you skip words. That happens. That could be what happened. Or it could be that some copyist at some point said, hey, you know what? Why is that phrase not there? Because that's exactly where it's about to go. Let's put it there. We don't know which of these two things that happened. But we know this. If we go to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8, it talks about how God preserves the Scripture sufficiently through His providence. It does not, he does not, however, preserve it perfectly. If he preserved it perfectly, we'd have none of those little footnotes that say things like, some manuscripts omit. Okay. What do I mean by sufficiently? What I mean is, there's nothing necessary that is lost by omissions, nor is there anything unnecessary that is gained, or sorry, there's, uh, yeah, Everything that is gained is unnecessary, so to speak, uh, if it's accidentally added. I hope that made sense. No doctrine is missing. In other words, if we omit the Son of God. Why do I say no doctrine is missing? Well, as we're going to see next week, this next chapter points to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. The doctrine that Jesus is the Son of God in terms of He is divine, He's not like Caesar, and we'll talk about that later on, Okay, is found not only here, but it's found throughout the New Testament. And so if, if those two words are not present, we don't lose anything. Nor is anything foreign introduced to the text if we add them. Like, this is the only place this is found. Hmm, that would be an odd addition, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want to base a doctrine on that. If this was the only place that it says Jesus is the Son of God, we would worry, but it's not. Okay, Nothing is added that isn't found also throughout the rest of Scripture. So, if you see those little things, those little footnotes that say this you know, is omitted in some manuscripts, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't lose sleep over it. God preserves His Word sufficiently so that you will know what you need to know. Okay? Jesus, not Augustus, was the Son of God. Now, that's significant because Caesars often claimed to be sons of God. And so here we have, oddly enough, an inscription in the sit from the city of Ephesus, where Caesar Augustus in particular is claimed to be divine. Okay? We also have coins from the Romans, and in that you'll see the divus, okay, claiming to be gods, the son of God. They viewed just as the pharaohs viewed. Uh, well, the Egyptians, rather, viewed Pharaoh as the Son of God, so the Romans viewed Caesar as divine. That's why they engaged in emperor worship later on. Um, 
But Jesus is a true Son of God who entered time and space to rule the world. And so our second point from the text is that the Gospel is a great story about Jesus the Messiah. It's not just any old story, but it's about Jesus the Messiah. And so the focus in Mark is going to be on how Jesus is the Messiah. The third part is more the implications of all of this. The implication of Augustus being Caesar, uh, those weren't very profound for the average person. Actually, for the average person, life probably continued just as it was. You probably wouldn't have noticed a big shift or uh, anything. Unless you were, of course, one of the people who was hoping that that Augustus or Octavius at that point would have been defeated in the field of battle. Then life might not be going so good for you if they knew that you were cheering for uh, Octavius' enemies. But the good news, the great news of Jesus being the Messiah is intended to have far-reaching implications beyond space and time. You're intended to follow Jesus. And since we're going to talk a lot about that, I thought I'd lay this out a little bit to give you a foretaste. To follow Jesus means that we receive Him as our prophet. Uh, that we listen to his story. And, and not just, as I said, to gain information, but so that it shapes our lives. It begins to change how we look at the world, how we look at ourselves, how we look at the people around us, how we look at the events that take place. To follow Jesus means that we also receive him as our priest so that we can be forgiven, and so that we can preach forgiveness in His name to everybody. In other words, step back a little farther from that statement, the Bible story, as well as your personal story, include the fact that each of us are sinners who break God's law. In other words, we have a profound need for forgiveness. And Jesus is what the one that God supplies to meet that need of forgiveness. We have a priest who hears our confession. We have a priest who bears us through his prayers. When we suffer, we are not alone, but he is there beside us, sustaining us. Not only is He our prophet and our priest, but He is also our King. And so to follow Jesus means to submit to His rule. One of the aspects of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel is that we were intent, the disciples were intended to teach everyone, or teach the disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. Why? Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Him. He's the King. We obey the King. We're not His people because we obey the King. We obey the King because we're His people. But He also protects and He provides for His people. He knows those who are His people. When we think about His kingdom, 
we should be thinking about it not in terms of maybe what we've read in storybooks and or seen in movies, uh, but more along the lines of, say, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That ultimately the characteristics of the of the kingdom are righteousness, peace, and joy, and the only way we experience them is through the power of the Holy Spirit who is given by King Jesus. When we mentioned Isaiah 52 a little while ago, it ends with that phrase, our God reigns. Interestingly enough, this week in a couple of uh, the letters that John, I was reading that John Newton wrote, He says this, The Lord reigns. He who once bore our sins and carried our sorrows is seated upon a throne of glory and exercises all power in heaven and on earth. And so Newton understands the implications of all of this. The Lord reigns, therefore, my sins have been taken away. He carries my sorrows and infirmities. He exercises all power in heaven and earth for His people. He he continues in another letter. And he's talking about the the political confusion that was taking place uh, in England at that point in time. I can't remember if this was the letter that referred to the American Revolution. Um, May have been. But there was a time of great uncertainty in England. They had a lot of debt, and they, they were go, kind of going under, and there's, because there's been a lot of wars that have been taking place, and so there's a lot of great uncertainty. And John Newton, in the midst of this uncertainty, says, there is one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. His hand guides the storm. He knows them that are His how to protect, support, and deliver them. And so, Newton lived in England, but he was following Jesus. And that story, the truths of Scripture, were shaping how he interacted with his world. They shaped his life that was lived in his place. And it can shape your life lived in your place. The good news is our source for identity, who we are. It's our grid through which we make sense of life. Quick example, illustration of this. For those of you who like the Hunger Games, you'll be excited. For those of you who've never heard of it, you'll be confused. There's a guy named Peter. Peter loved Katniss. He did everything in the first two movies, two books, doesn't matter which, they're the same, to protect Katniss. He would die rather than see the woman he loved harmed. But at the end of the second volume, he is captured. We, didn't, we don't realize this till later on. He's captured by the government and brainwashed so that the story he believes is that Katniss is evil and he must kill her. He no longer believes that he loves her, but that he hates her and must destroy her. 
And so he tries that. They release him, the government does, knowing that the rebels will bring him back in with Katniss, and he almost immediately tries to kill her. So they communicate eventually that we believe you've been brainwashed. <laughs> and this game emerges, in, which is a reality check for PETA, where he goes, true or not true? He's testing what he believes against another source. Is what I'm thinking true? Did Katniss really do this, or is that not true? Is that a lie that I have believed? So you and I, all of us, have believed some lies. And we need to come to a greater knowledge of the truth. And what we're supposed to do is play true, not true with Scripture. Meaning, is what I believe true, does it match up to Scripture? The Scripture, the stories of the Bible are intended to define what's true for us. We don't tell the Scriptures what's true. We live under submission to God's Word, not as judges over God's Word. But in order for it to shape our lives, we have to ask that question. Is what I'm thinking in accordance with this? Or is it something that's not true? That's what we're intended to do. And so we are to follow, in order to follow Jesus, we are to receive the gospel as a necessary story for us. So, a story or sometimes multiple stories will shape your life. Uh, That's really the way we've been made. That's part of how God made us. The gospel comes to us as a true story, as history, that is intended to shape your life. It speaks of creation. It speaks of sin. It speaks of redemption and ultimately speaks of glory. But this story centers on this person, Jesus, the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And so to follow Jesus means to accept His story as true and meaningful, authoritative for your life. And that's where we're going for the next I don't know how long. (laughs) I haven't mapped it all out yet, but we need to pray. Father, um, help us to know that this is a story we need. There's so many people telling us what we need. It's, It's hard for us to know what we really need sometimes. And our hearts sometimes will lie to us. Our minds deceive us. And sin is deceitful. So we have a hard time sorting out what's real and what's not real, what's true and not true. Make us a people who keep going back to the Scriptures to see who Jesus really is, who we really are, and what You've really done for us, and what that calls us to. Father, make us disciples of Jesus. Um, and help us to have a better understanding of that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.